G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Footyology Podcast. We've got a lot to talk to you about. Plenty of footy news happening, some coaching appointments, uh, the lists still being formulated, the draft approaching sooner than later, all sorts of off-season chicanery um, and our other favourite segments to talk to you about too as we uh, make some observations on life and revisit the uh, music, movies, TV and favourite footy memories of a year in the dim, dark, distant passages of time. As I say, a very good afternoon it is now. Let's uh, let's fess up. We're doing this in the afternoon. To my footyology co-host, Mark Fine, how are you going, Fine? I'm going well, Roko. I've been busy during the week thinking about the podcast. Really? That'd be a first. I, yeah, yeah. I thought I'd, I thought I'd put my mind to it. Uh, I think we need a tagline. I've come up with two possibles. Yeah. Footyology, the podcast with the oddcast. That, that's <laughs> or, good. No, I don't footyology, the P in the podcast. <laughs> Not bad, not bad. We'll make a, a marketing man out of you yet. Beautiful. Um, so that constitutes being busy, does it? Coming up with those two taglines or have you actually, actually done so? I, I actually came up with those in between you saying, what's your opening line always? G'day, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Between g'day, everyone, <laughs> and throwing to me, I came up with those. Okay, oh, that's good. That's good disciplined work from you. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> I'll tell you what you don't need discipline for, hence you've been able to consume a lot over the years, is the finest hamburger in the universe, Fidey. Tell us all about it. Well, I was actually thinking about Andrew's hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. A lot of places that have a food stuff enshrined in greatness and known far and wide as the best are very secretive, you know, Secret sauces, secret herbs and spices. They're up front, mate. Go there and watch how it's done. If you can do it, do it at home. Go on, do it, do it. Maybe you can, but you're just going to have to source everything perfectly. Get about 81 years experience and also have an absolute passion for making the next burger as good as the last burger, which was as good as the one before that won the award for the best in the country. It's a pretty simple bloody formula, Rowan. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Look, you can try and replicate it, but you will never, ever be able to even come within cooey of matching the freshness but firmness of those Andrews hamburger buns, the tenderness of the juicy meat patties, those vegetables just beating with garden freshness. It's, it's just humanly impossible to replicate an Andrews hamburger. You know, I, I've listened to your excellent uh, prosaic descriptions of Andrew's hamburgers and I believe there's a sexual element to it (laughs) and I over the duration of or the run of the podcast now believe I know where your proclivities lie 
with firmness and beading and various other tender, juicy bits. I'd be able to serve you up exactly what you wanted, both at a burger place and at a place of ill repute. Yeah, so I, I was wondering if you're going to go there or head towards the uh, infamous scene from the movie American Pie. And fortunately, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't the latter. I'll tell you one thing that I would have thought it was pretty hard to um, conjure erotic imagery about, and that was home renovations. But these guys do it so well, it's almost sensual finding. You're talking about quality erections again, aren't you? Oh, and yeah. I agree. Look, this is a company, they, they, they're not airy-fairy showman, rubbish, bullshit, the block. In the real world, you go to see a builder, a master builder like Nick Spartels, and you work with great architects, with really design experts that are beyond architects, they're artists, and that's true. Great supplies, international supplies. I think that's what Nick brings to the party worldwide supplies you know some of the some of the things that you'll get in your rebuild they're not australian made and not available in this country but the world is a small place when it comes to getting the best that's his attitude that's west point properties and that's why you draw some parallels between male satisfaction and a new renovation it is one of the great menage a trois the relationship between the client west point properties and the most beautifully sensually recreated house you could ever imagine. Yep, that's a three-way that I'd get involved with. All right, we might have uh, just left our best work in the intro there. Hopefully not, but we've got a lot to talk about. Let's do it now. On Footyology Newsfeed. Okay, plenty of news going on, and uh, we finally have a complete posse of 18 senior coaches appointed and in place and preparing for season 2021. And I'm speaking, of course, of North Melbourne's appointment of uh, Brisbane football manager David Noble to the senior coaching position. Um, It's an interesting one, isn't it, Fanny? Because there's definitely a trend uh, emerging here in some recent coaching appointments, and I will allude to that later in my rant. But uh, David Noble a long-time servant of the game of football in a variety of roles. Of course, he did play AFL footy, albeit only two games with Fitzroy in 1991 from Tasmania originally. Got to make his AFL debut in Tasmania, funnily enough, playing for the Lions against Hawthorne, a game in which Hawthorne racked up 231 points and absolutely smashed the Lions. Uh, He only added one more to that tally, but he has had a long and successful career in various football posts. He was an assistant coach at the Western Bulldogs for five years. He coached Glenelg in the Sandful for a couple of years in 2003 and four. Headed up Adelaide's football department for a long time and then, of course, poached by Brisbane, where he spent the last four years years. Uh, 53 years old. Uh, his son, John, of course, plays for Collingwood. That'll be interesting when the Roos play the Pies, if his son's playing. Some handy inside info you'd think on that uh, particular part of the Collingwood defence. But um, it seems to have been pretty well accepted universally. Finding what uh, what do you make of that appointment? It's been very well received because he ticks all the boxes. Of course, the boxes change 
sort of every five to ten years. But at the moment, he ticks all the boxes of experience, connectiveness, connectivity to a successful club, range of roles within the game, et cetera, et cetera. I think he's a very good choice. If you like, it's like the movie review. If you like Chris Fagan, you'll love David Noble in Coaching North Melbourne. So yeah, well, that's the line there. And well, I mean, look, I am preempting my rant a bit here, but of course, Luke Beveridge, uh, when he was appointed, had coached um, very successfully too in the amateurs, but had uh, after being an assistant coach or development coach at Collingwood, then an assistant coach at Hawthorne. He was actually, and people forget this, when the Bulldogs appointed him, he was about to head to St Kilda, St. Kilda yep. as their head of football. So another managerial role. And uh, Phil Walsh, the late uh, Phil Walsh, of course, not long after Beveridge was appointed, was um, thrust into that role by Adelaide. And he had been an assistant coach, but at the time he was appointed, he was in more a uh, overseeing sort of position. So... You know, seriously, it is a real pointer, isn't it, to how much of the senior coaching job now is about man management and the ability to be able to work with groups of people, not only players, but manage coaches as well. Yeah, he's got plenty of um, runs on the board in terms of running a big team in a football club, did that at Adelaide. I know both of you and I have an insatiable appetite for the statistically interesting, and whilst footy anoraks like ourselves can name those coaches who never played a, an AFL or VFL game. I guess we have a bit of fun with those who played the least AFL or VFL games. I, I guess that Mick Noonan only played two or three, didn't he, on loan? He played for Richmond on loan from, like, somewhere in Adelaide on national service, I think. Did he? Yep. Played, okay. one or two, played a couple of games for Richmond. Gee, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, I think you're right, actually, now I think about it. But I think I think that's where we run into David Noble's nearest opponent for the least games, but games played. Of course, Wayne Britton, uh, about well, twenty years back now, that wasn't quite. And and but a measure of how far we've come, I think, when you remember the prejudices that worked against Wayne Britton when and, he was and Hammond uh, at South Melbourne, Bob Hammond, of course, despite being one of the great players of all time, anyone who watched South Australian football would be able to tell you that. So um, certainly interesting to see. Uh, I, I guess the other element to this too was that after he was appointed, North Chairman Ben Buckley came out and talked about how they were still hoping to be, you know, a premiership contender in a couple of years. And um, that received the usual sort of hoots and hollering and what are you talking about? But I don't know, I reckon these days, I, I don't see the harm in setting your sights high. And we've seen over the last 10 years, so many clubs who have looked in desperate straits one year and, and risen to uh, the heights, you know, within the next couple of years. Like, I really take the view these days that, you know, no club's complete turnaround and revival is an impossibility anymore. That's how close the competition is and often how little is required to turn things around. Do you agree with that? It's definitely, and I think we're getting more evidence on a regular basis currently through Port Adelaide possible to turn your fortunes around by reinvigorating the list, particularly with some top end draft talent. Chance well, maybe yeah. for Essendon. But what 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 I you have to sort of temper those realities with club speak 
I mean, a, a chairman, president, head of a football club is always going to say publicly, you know, one, two, three years, because how do you go out and get long-term sponsorship if you're more honest and say, oh, I think we'll be good in 2032, you know? So they have to really sell the, the immediate future rather than the long-term future for getting the bucks in around this time of the year. I guess my point is that, you know, I, I don't think someone should necessarily be sneezed at for making a comment like that. I remember when Peter Schwab coaching Hawthorne in 2004 went that road. I was actually there at the function. He made the remark, we will win the premiership. And he was just trying to sort of demonstrate the confidence that they had, but he got roundly pilloried for that. Um, I, I, I do think we have matured a bit since then, but look, North... I look at North list. I don't think it's shocking. You know, I've seen much worse lists than that. They're, I think they've got some good young talent. Um, let's hope he can bring it together. Yeah, right. look, I remember famously Ron Barassi's five-year plan at Melbourne, which became the first of, uh, what, six consecutive five-year plans that took us right back to where Ron Barassi kicked us off from. It's I, th- I really think clubs don't need to make any statements about windows, years, plans. Things can happen very quickly, as you said. Just let's hope they do for North's sake. Yeah, well, I hope it goes better than the first year of that Ron Barassi five-year plan. I remember mean, in 1981, the Demons won precisely one game for the season. Against uh, Footscray. Yeah, out at the Western Oval, almost on the bell. I think Robbie Flower might have kicked he did. the winning goal. He did. I thought he had an injured wrist and also... The problem about that win was Melbourne were sort of expected to win that game. So there were no wild celebrations, almost a a sort of a, a semi-concerned trudge off the ground that they didn't win by more. At least when you win one game, you can party up. But then to back that up, they weren't uh, a bad side at all the following year in 1982, actually racked up some decent wins from memory. So let's see what happens with the Roos. All right, uh, we've seen the trade period. We talked about that last week. Actually, finally, we should just cover off on the trade period. And I did, I gave you a bit of a wind-up when you wanted to talk about our respective clubs last week. And um, I noticed a couple of posters on our Footyology Big Footy thread weren't too impressed with that. They wanted me to allow you to ramble endlessly about our clubs. And I tried to put them right and warn them that... uh, the Zoom stream on which we record actually cuts off after eight hours. So we probably wouldn't be able to fit it all in. No, I'm just, I'm taking the piss. But let's, uh, we did flag it. So let's talk about our own clubs. Um, how do you think St Kilda fared over the trade period? Yeah, really well when you understand that St Kilda embarked on probably a, a, a genuine two-year trade period at the start of last year. Uh, they said during the season, despite getting five first-team selection players in through the trade last year, that there was more work to be done. So it was a complete rebuild of the midfield. And the best element for St Kilda was the price. So Crouch for nothing via restricted free agency. Higgins for a loss of position for the first-round draft pick, but not a lot more. And McKernan for backup, well, that's not really a trade. He was delisted, so you pick them up for nothing. Nothing clever there. Not saying that he won't be a good backup or a clever move, but it's not really part of trade week for me. I don't know why it was included. So, yeah, they did well. Crouch, when fit, and that is the asterisk, he's a perfect pickup. 
underrated. I watched three games in full with Crouch. I was surprised at how quick he was getting away from the contest. He's no slog. He's no slouch. He's no slug. But 95 games in eight years, there's your warning bell. How about your Bombers? Um, oh, oh, Secured a loss of Nick Hind, a bit of pace to Essendon. So you did well there. Yeah, I, look, I, I've got to say, it's probably the first positive thing I've had to say about Essendon for a while. But I, yeah, I, I thought they did really well. And on two fronts, landed some decent uh, prospects um, and uh, ended up with a very strong draft hand. So best of both worlds, if you like. Peter Wright is interesting. You know, it's obvious he's got plenty of athletic potential. Um, we talked about that a little bit last week. But, um, you know, that's got to be realised. But he has ability. Um, so, okay, have, so, do you know what his problem is? Uh, no. Tank. So, uh, can you work on that? Yeah, you can work on a tank, sure. Um, well, that's that's the main knock on him. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm thinking surely they've brought him more as a key forward than a ruckman. I think Draper will be carrying the bulk of the ruck load. So, yep. uh, interesting to say. So, look, uh, Caldwell, um, you know, plenty of reps on him, early draft pick. You know, it's not often a highly rated junior midfielder who goes early in a draft ends up not delivering anything. And this guy simply hasn't had the requisite opportunity at GWS. So pretty happy with that one. Um, obviously, they would have liked to have picked up Josh Dunkley, but didn't. I really like them picking up Hind. Um, you know, I know, look, he, he didn't get that many opportunities at St Kilda, but a couple of games he played for the Saints really... Stuck in my head. Great pace. And I think Essendon obviously needs to replace that after losing both McKenna and Saad. So uh, strategically, I think that one's a good pickup. And well, I, can pick- I can tell you a bit about Hind, just very quickly. It's a great pickup because much loved at St Kilda, real good part of the team unit. More importantly, came from Essendon Reserves, where he clearly is a running player off the half-back line. Now, St Kilda... Uh, made that same mistake with Ben Long, put him to the forward line, but got him back on the halfback line, put in Caulfield, put in Hunter Clark, realised that you've still got the likes of Geary. Savage is gone now, but even Webster. Nick Hind as a forward, not fair to him. You'll get great run off the halfback line from Nick Hind. I reckon at some point next year, Essendon supporters will be saying, you know what? Sard for Hind, not that much of a difference. And we've got a first top 10 draft pick. Thank you. Yeah, well, three. Pick six, seven and eight at this stage. Um, but the trade for Sarge, yeah. Yeah, well, look, they they have to nail those picks. That That's the bottom line for me. And, you know, history suggests you can't be overly confident they will. And harder to get those picks right this year because so many of the junior prospects coming from Victoria haven't played footy. So, you know, it's a tough year in which to get such prized draft picks and we won't know how good they are until several years down the track. My my one reservation with this is that, you know, if you bring in three uh, tradees, if you like, that seems to indicate to me um, a list management that still thinks it's somewhere thereabouts. And I don't with the Bombers. I think they're still short of talent. Uh, at the bottom end of the of the best 22. I think defence is a major worry with Hurley and Hooker, in my view, just about cooked. Uh, is there enough there to replace them? I'm not convinced, you know, in the likes of Zerk, Thatcher, Ambrose, etc. You know, they may or may not end up being long-term players. Well, Ambrose has been around a while, but... You know, I, I I still think there's plenty of doubts over this list, and I would have liked to have seen them um, 
perhaps, you know, trade in at least one West player and, and try and pick up another early pick. But having said that, it is a difficult year to uh, to use a lot of draft picks. So, you know, maybe maybe it's a, a smart strategy. Time will tell. Anyway. I'll, tell you, I'll give you the words of a highly respected uh, former Collingwood champ. Yeah. Backhanded compliment for Essendon, but take it for what you will. Three picks he in a draft that he reckons has a very strong top 15. Yeah. And his comment was, even Essendon can't muck this up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, fair enough, too. Uh, all right. Uh, well, the trade period itself is over, but the period for delisted free agents to be signed up opens on Thursday. And just having a look at um, some of the names, I, I honestly can't remember a year in which there's been so many proven players or players of obvious talent available. And it's going to be really interesting to see how many of these are picked up by other clubs. But I'll just read you this list of names and uh, pick out a few which catch your eye and think, yep. uh, yeah, they'll definitely be drafted and, and why they'd be valued. So we've got Heath Shaw, 34 years old, but still putting himself out there, hoping to be picked up, obviously a short-term proposition. Uh, Lewis Jetta, dual premiership player, 31 now, but boy, he can run. Uh, Oscar McDonald, Jackson Trengove, Matt Scharenberg, Majak Dorr, Jordan Gallucci, Shane Savage, Jacob Townsend, Mason Wood, Riley Knight. They, they were the names that most caught my eye. What's interesting there is there's quite a few big athletic key position types and they don't fall off trees. So I'm looking at that group and thinking, I'd, I'd think maybe at least half of them could get picked up again. What do you think? Uh, they, they, I feel sorry for them. They, they are the guys, and you're right, easily could see spots in teams. For, well, most of them, you know, but the reduction in the list size means that they're in a discussion maybe with the last one or two players. Mm. And you know what? It's a lot harder to get rid of somebody that's been at your club for two or three years than just saying, no, nah, I think we'll pass on Gallucci. We'll stick with Petucci. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the call, I think, may fall against them a bit, but we'll see. What about, well, any of those names I mentioned that made you think, oh, yeah, someone should get him or not? Oscar McDonald's 24 years old. He's not terrible. Uh, Lewis Jenner's 31. That's not his problem. Running's not his problem. I reckon he's a young 31. Yeah, yeah, because he's barely been in one physical piece of play in his entire career. And therein right. lies the problem. If <laughs> you can, right. if you, if you, I'm saying like Bradley Hill, but Bradley Hill's got a better track record. If you need that outside run to cap off, you know, good inside usage, go for him. And I'll tell you what, Melbourne still need one wingman because as I kept telling them, Tomlinson's not a wingman. Why wouldn't they go for it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd take I take it. They've got the inside players to get it to him. I'll say this. I'll say two who I think are probably doubtful uh, to be picked up again are Jacob Townsend and Mason Wood. Um, No, they're done. A few too many convictions for Wood and Townsend. Well, gee, three clubs now uh, for not much return, apart from that little purple patch for Richmond in 2017. What about uh, Shane Savage? Oh, he'll get picked up for sure. Yeah, GWS okay. are, look, are looking at him. Why wouldn't you want 
He played in the last final for St Kilda. Kicks a good goal too. Good player. He's well, all right. No, yeah. You'd take him in a heartbeat. The other one I'm looking at, maybe more from sentimental grounds, but I, gee, it's hard to disregard the season Magic Door had playing in defence or half season for the Roos in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, not you know, get taken. You, you don't think he'll be taken? No, no. The problem is he scouts with all clubs as a leading turnover of the ball. And unfortunately, he plays in the era of Richmond, who basically win premierships on turnovers. And, you know, it's great to take a big mark in the back line. I love him. I, I reckon anybody that can play three positions, tough ones like uh, key forward, key back, and Ruckman has a spot. But they just have concerns that uh, clubs can, uh, are so fretful about turning the ball over. And he ranks very poorly in decision making and ball usage. They don't want players like that. Okay, no, it's interesting. I, I'd still argue that his athletic prowess um, and increasing confidence when he last had a, a complete season where yeah, yeah. it was an indicator that he was reaching a peak pretty late. And um, look, I've, I've, I've no uh, suggestion that they are. I'm not suggesting anything here. Yeah. But if my club picked him up, I'd yep. be reasonably pleased about it. I reckon he's worth the punt, albeit you make a good point about the reduced lists. Um, so, oh, the other one, just quickly, Matt Scharenberg, he's only 25, had a shocking run with injuries and did, uh, in what, 2018, really establish himself as part of that Collingwood backline. Yeah, pretty, unfortunately, he's a halfback flanker. Now, this is where it's a bit tough for these players. If he was at a, at a club playing week in, week out, he's good enough to play AFL footy on a halfback flank. But for clubs to go out and seek a new halfback flanker, they want the run or they want the beautiful kicking efficiency and disposal. They're not looking for a working type off the halfback line, even though a lot of teams have them. They're looking for that point of difference, which is why Essendon did so well with Nick Hind. Mm. All right, yeah. well, I think... Well, don't, uh, you think, don't you think that you can just... You know, Scharenberg doesn't have the... It's why Luke Dunstan's of no interest to another club. It, they're good footballers, good enough to play AFL, but there's no blue sky. You're not going to get any more than you've got. And if there was more to get, they wouldn't be on the market. Possibly. Do you agree, uh, given the list of names I read out, that there is more talent on offer in this group of delisted free agents than we've seen before? You know, I've never paid a lot of attention to delisted free agents. I see they come up and get taken, but the fact that there are 10 players there. Is it 10? Um, hang on. That, you keep that. talking. I'll count. Yeah. 10 players that would have raised no eyebrows. None of them would have surprised, maybe except for Townsend. Even would because he was at a struggling club, had they been retained for another year. Mm. That's how, you know, that's how football, life as an AFL footballer is so fleeting. And it's just, a decision, you know, in the boardroom. No, we'll move on. And sometimes, oh. no, we'll keep him. Well, tough, that, tough that was a group of 11. And, of course, there's plenty more that I didn't read out there too. So yeah. uh, it'll certainly keep people, um, I guess, alert to reading about various signings because I think a lot of clubs will at least consider some of those names pretty strongly. I um, can tell you, I can tell you, St Kilda will, there's another category, retired Free agents or whatever it is, you know, because probably retired. 
but yeah. he will he's go he will play for St Kilda next year. I can tell you that before it's made official, but it's official. Really? Yeah, yeah he's oh. going to play for St Kilda next year, guaranteed. I'd, I hadn't seen that anywhere. Is that oh, yeah, you yeah. Re- revealing that exclusively on footy? No, no, it was it was widely reported that St Kilda mm. were interested in him. Okay. Now, uh, it's, they said that he th- that they were going to approach him. Well, I can tell you that he was delighted to be approached. Said absolutely, I'm interested. Uh, not for least reason, St Kilda are now building the Danny Frawley Centre, and he loves the idea of finishing at his uncle's club. But also, he believes he's got football left in him. And he's told the club, he said, make this very clear. I know that I'm there for backup, but I'm going to fight for a spot in the team. And when I get it, I'll keep it. And that's probably why they've decided not to move on with offering Savage another year, even though they like him. They've got enough of that type of player. But if, if Carlisle or Howard goes down, they don't really have much tall defensive cover. And Frawley is going to be a saint by Thursday afternoon. Well, there you go. Watch this space. Uh, breaking news delivered exclusively. Well, not exclusively, but uh, we'll dress it up and make it sound like yeah, it's something. I'll, I'll, I'll Tom Brown it if you want. Yeah, okay. Well, can you throw in a report about kebabs? My, and... my sources, or... garlic for kebab, have my my people tell me he likes this term tonight. It's it's tonight. My people are telling me that as though it's an ongoing story with a with a, an operating news centre. Yeah, I can so tell you tonight. Well, don't tell me tonight. I'd like to find out at 4am in the morning. He's been delving into the realms of political commentary lately, Tom Brown. And uh, if you are listening, Tom, just a quick message. Uh, perhaps you should delve straight out of them again, uh, unless you want to tangle, <laughs> tangle with me. Um, yeah, some interesting thoughts there on the evils of socialism and the merits of Kevin Rudd's petition about a royal commission into the Murdoch media empire. Tom's a bit of an apologist for Rupert Murdoch. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Uh, it's, Tom, uh, it's Tom Brown with an E, and given some of his reports, I reckon a bag of marijuana as well. But anyhow, carry on. Uh, oh, that was, that was harsh. All right. Well, uh, it was Tom with an E, you know. Yeah, okay. Let's just finish off. Uh, we did talk about the rule changes last week. They'd just been announced when we recorded last week and had a bit of time to think about reactions. In fact, I pinned uh, about 2,000 words on that. Did you happen to read that finally or are you not reading our own website anymore? I'm sorry, I didn't, here, you, I didn't pick you up then. No, you didn't read it, did you? Well, uh, sorry, I... we're uh, coming through loud and clear now. Yes, yeah, on Wednesday. I'm, okay. I'm... That's I will great. read it. Yeah, no, thanks for your support. Sorry, um, I will. We won't revisit that discussion, but there has been the reaction of various uh, former greats because their opinions always matter far more, of course. And uh, there was one that uh, caught your eye, I think a reaction of one Kevin Sheedy to the rule changes. What would you make of that? Well, he said he's, he's come up with his 12 of his own rule changes. 12? Ranging from the sublime to the ridiculous. And the sublime has been mentioned quite a few times. Not saying that you're exclusive or you were first, because it's pretty logical. If, for those who are not regular uh, Footyology podcast listeners, welcome on board. And Rowan has long been a proponent for the simplest, sometimes 
obvious answers and best answers are there in front of you. You want less congestion. How about less players? Rowan likes 16 aside. So does Kevin Sheedy. And well, so hang on. Yep. But well, before that, what I like even more than 16 aside is the umpires calling for quicker ball-ups, yep. which yep. still yep. hasn't been talked about. Anyway, go on. But, yeah, so you've long said 16 aside. I wasn't as sure, but you know what? It's a pretty simple fact. Congestion, less people. More, you know, traffic snarls, less cars. Congestion, reduce the number of things that are congesting. No problems making 16-a-side football work. We've seen it in another competition some years ago, the VFA. So Kevin was uh, putting forward those ideas. Uh, he doesn't like boundary umpires anymore. When the ball goes out of bounds, he wants the field umpire to grab it and quickly walk towards the centre at bounds. I couldn't work that one out. Throw it up, I don't know, something like that. Again, speeding up the stoppages. But then he, the one that got the headlines was his most left-field idea was to bring back the flick pass, which I think is terrible because we already have so many handballs that are... Uh, closer cousins to throws than the old genuine handball. And this game loses its character, but also its nature and its um, degrees of difference and interest with throwing the ball rather than handballing. And so I don't like that one at all, Rowan. Well, can you just tell me, I, I did see, he did a little video talking about the flick pass, but the first thing and only thing I thought watching it was, what? how does that help? reduce congestion or increase scores or all the things we're actually trying to do? How? It's e easier to get a flick pass off, I think, than a handball in a in a um, closed tackle situation. And it also opens up, I think, the interpretive leniency for umpires that would basically just say, if the ball moves, play on. So you could start throwing it. It's again, though, like to me, it's just, and this was the theme of the column I wrote, was it all, most of these proposed things or trials, it's all, it's piss farting around finally. They're, they're not actually giving a decent go to the things that actually could make a difference. Like they're still, we're still not hearing them talk about 16 aside. Uh, I still have yet to hear a single person in the, I don't know, I reckon close to 10 years I've been banging on about this, tell me either why we can or why we can't simply have the umpires calling for a ball up quicker after two or three players come in. No one okay, even well, talks about it. So now we're going to have to, we're going to have to uh, take back nominating Ruckman if you want to do that. Yeah, yeah, fine. That's a stroke of a pen. No one gives a stuff about that. Okay. No, I don't mind. I'm just saying that has to be done first. But <laughs> look, there's uh, I reckon there's a little rule of thumb here. We are getting too many passages of play that look like rugby union. Yeah. And that includes players leaving the ball behind them, throwing it out, whatever. Did you see Argentina-Australia on the weekend? I didn't, actually. Rugby union should be removed from the brotherhood of sports and sent into the sin bin of the shamed things that people did in the past, like, I don't know, what did they do in the past that was shameful? Uh, invade Australia? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm just saying this. That game, that sport is stuffed. 15 all between Australia and Argentina, not one try. All for pernickety, persnickety, I got that word again, all persnickety penalties in a game that is nothing more 
than taking the worst parts of Australian rules football and doing it for 80 minutes. We have got to keep away from that. I know. I couldn't agree more. I've always thought rugby league was a far superior game to union. And you know what? Having watched, I watched the whole State of Origin series. I watched the grand final. It's as much rugby league as I've watched for a while. The quality of rugby league at the moment is pretty damn high and it's pretty attractive. I'll tell you what, too, there's quite... My mum being the latest, (laughs) I know maybe family isn't a great representative example, but I've heard a number of people talk about how they've drifted away from AFL towards rugby league. And the more rugby league I watch, uh, the more I sort of understand why. It is a pretty attractive spectacle at the moment and going in... I think aesthetically, the opposite direction to our game. So, yeah, yeah. You see, isn't the great thing in rugby league the breakaway? You know, when somebody gets through and just that the excitement there, and they seem to be able to engender more and more of that the more I watch it. Yeah, and they throw the ball around, and they look to you know when you get a penalty anywhere near the scoring zone. Now, as often as not, they'll try to, uh, they'll continue to attempt the try rather than just take the automatic, you know, the conversion and the the two points. So, I mean, it's, they seem to have a, a more progressive attitude on, on the aesthetics of the game than we do at the moment, which is a worry. Anyway, I'm sure we'll be talking about rule changes and their impact or lack of impact for a long time yet, certainly over the off-season. That, however, is enough news for this week and... Uh, we have some weird and wonderful segments to follow, including one where we just muse on matters life and love and loss and something else that starts with L. Let's have a crack at that one now. Life Hacks, building a better world. All right, I'm going to kick us off. Uh, my first life hack this week, Finey, uh, it's probably a pretty obvious one, but as we come out of, and we being Victoria, emerges from its coronavirus funk. What a fantastic story. This has been the driving down of the virus to practically nothing. In fact, what was today? The 25th, I think, day in a row of zero cases, zero deaths, and now um, zero, what do you call it? The last hospital patient has uh, got out. I think Gary's name is, everyone's saying his name's Gary. Anyway, Gary's got better. He's off home. And uh, it's a triple donut for Victoria. Fantastic to see. However, I reckon like a lot of people, uh, I've encountered one slightly disturbing um, symptom, finally, and it is the post-lockdown traumatic stress disorder. And it's that one where you've got so used to seeing no one around and no cars on the road that when you finally encounter them again, it bloody throws you out. And I've been driving around like a 90-year-old woman, absolutely scared of being amongst all this traffic. And I'm just talking about Chadston Road there. I'm not even talking about the CBD. I've been stuck in a traffic jam on the Monash Freeway. That was sort of like a bit of deja vu. It had been a long time. I think the last time I was stuck in a Monash traffic jam, I was driving a jalopy, you know, with one of those little running boards on the side. Um, it's pretty weird and it makes me feel a bit uneasy. And I, I've got to be honest, part of me sort of enjoyed the 1970s-like feel we had on the roads with uh, so much less traffic and people around. And it's sort of making me feel like 
I actually do want to escape to the country at some stage. Have you had any of those symptoms, Finey? No, I love traffic. I love being stuck in the traffic for two hours and rude people and all the all the problems you get with society. Of course, it was great. We had this beautiful city uh, bereft of every other idiot on the road because, of course, I'm the only genius. Everybody else is an idiot. I should be allowed to use the roads independently of everybody else. I knew the day was coming that I'd have to encounter school pickups again and, you know, um, those unbearably long snarls around where I live because there's no right turn, no left turn. And then whether you can turn left or right, there's somebody building an anthill in the middle of the road and you're being directed by people with lollipop sticks to go slowly, go left, go back up your own backside. I hate it. All right. Okay. Well, that was well articulated. Um, anyway, that that's my first life hack. It's going to take a bit of getting used to, I think. So if you see a, a middle-aged man driving a little overcautiously and looking a bit freaked out at the sight of people, uh, it's me. Say hello uh, very carefully, though, or I might scream and run away. What's your first life hack? We need to do some investigative journalism here. Like, really, I sort of feel like there's a bit of a story in this, and I just wonder. Maybe you know. Maybe everybody knows but me. Right, so over winter, the Fox Cricket Channel shows a lot of replays, doesn't it? Does. And they and very good that they cover the IPL, and we saw a lot of that. But their sort of standard fare over the winter was a replaying over and over of one-day cricket international one-day cricket from Australia about 30 to 20 years ago. Over and over, same games. And they just happened to all be Benson and Hedges cricket competitions. So in this era of no cigarette advertising, they put on two hours where the word Benson and Hedges is uttered by the commentators every second delivery. Oh, smash the way there. He could be the Benson and Hedges player of the game. Play, smashed into giant hoardings of Benson and Hedges. And I just wonder, has anybody checked into whether or not the tobacco company is actually paying for those shows to be rerun? Uh, well, that is a conspiracy theory up there with the best I've heard. That's not bad. I'll tell you one thing you've done, unfortunately, for me, though, Finey. Yep. You want a ciggy. Yeah, I knew that. We, we're not a visual here. Roman just flicked his lighter on. But um, it's, a bit nefarious, it's a bit of a nefarious way to advertise cigarettes. Surreptitious. Okay, I wonder if we should have a retrospective ban on tobacco advertising. You could. You could easily. Certainly the hoardings could be electronically blanked out. That is uh, yeah, an interesting topic. We may pursue that one further. All right, uh, my second observation, I can't let it go. It's the American election because uh, it's still dragging on and the biggest man baby in the entire history of the world continues to throw the greatest tantrum of all time. In fact, I read today that Donald Trump is still yet to uh, front, uh, answer or respond to any reporters questions since election night which was november the 23rd so we're now more than three weeks since election night and donald trump still hasn't actually confronted any reporters or taken 
any questions at all. He's just locked himself away there in the White House. He's got his team of crack lawyers on the case. And uh, as you saw, you might have seen Rudy Giuliani the other day got himself in such a flap that his hair dye started. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Down his forehead. Well, between that and Four Seasons Total Landscaping, uh, I think the creators of Veep have enough material for the next five years, let alone a couple of series. Uh, but now apparently Donald is getting a bit shirty with his legal team because they're not delivering the sort of verdicts he wants. In fact, just about every case so far has been thrown out very contemptuously by the judges. Um, everyone practically is now starting to say to him, uh, Donald, boy, it's time to actually concede defeat. But he just doesn't know how to do it. And it is the most childlike performance. I don't know why I'm surprised by it, but you sort of think, wow, you know, whenever you think, well, this, there's got to be some some semblance of adulthood in this man, there isn't. He is the biggest baby in the entire history of the world. And I'm just waiting for the moment, uh, probably on inauguration day, what is it, January 21st, before Biden takes the oath and makes a speech and whatever, we're going to see the sight of Donald Trump clad in who knows what with a pile of hamburgers or some fast food actually being physically dragged from the White House. Uh, I would pay good money to witness that spectacle live. Anyway, a ridiculous performance by him uh, in a perhaps fitting end to what has been a ridiculous four years. All right, your next observation. An excellent segue to my next observation. Was it you who put me on to checking out? No, I think it was somebody else checking out Donald Trump's diet. Because for the no, last week, me. I've gone to various websites reading what he eats. No, now, it wasn't me. Talk about immature. I have never heard. Uh, there's not an adult's diet I've ever heard of that is as childlike, spoilt, or oblivious to obvious needs for a balanced and varied diet as his. He is, it's unbelievable. Here is a man who proudly says that he is only comfortable eating McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's or KFC because he reckons big multinational chains have to keep hygienic conditions, otherwise they could get sued for millions if they put a sort of contaminated burger over the counter. So he's very comfortable eating it. And he eats a lot of it. His standard dinner is two quarter pounders, two filet of fish and a Coca-Cola, which is somehow he's hand-picked filet of fish that he reckons he has over 300 a year of the worst burger ever made. Sorry, McDonald's. Ever made that filet of fish. He He's crazy. He only has his steak extremely well done. And with the only side condiment, ketchup. And when he has meals at the White House for staffers or even visiting guests, everybody gets served the same meal, him and all the staffers, but he has to have extra sauce on his main course. He, his standard dessert is a slice of chocolate cake and a scoop of ice cream. But it's very clear, everybody gets one scoop of ice cream he gets two. <laughs> um, it's it, some of his eating habits. By uh, he's a germaphobe, so he will not eat anything from an open packet, even if he opened it previously and put it somewhere else. The Air Force One is 
stocked to the eyeballs with Pringles, Frito-Lay's chips and Oreos, even though he once said he's never eating another Oreo because they're moving their factory to Mexico. So his foreign policy on manufacture stops when it finally affects one of the eight things that he eats. He said um, he calls, well, I can't use the swear word, but he is rather derogatory about sushi, I'll tell you that much, and he can't imagine a time or place where he would ever eat a green vegetable. Well, how, do, how does he live? I mean, this is this is making my diet look like Pete Evans. And people say, even those medicos who've checked him out and are not Trump fans, yes, he is sort of overweight, but he's a big man, six foot three and 240 pounds, but extremely healthy for his age. Well, physically... Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't eat breakfast, and he, you know, they have a private kitchen and excellent chefs at the White House. The only thing he asked him to do was to be able to make McDonald's burgers in that kitchen. They tried and tried and tried, and every time he says the same thing, it's not McDonald's. Uh, it's like getting uh, Clark Gable to host Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, uh, it's it's just. It's just crazy. He obviously he doesn't get out of the car and go into McDonald's, but there are drive-throughs that he does go through, and apparently he just winds down the window and shows an ID badge, and they all know what to give him every drive-through <laughs> in Washington DC. All right, interesting. Uh, just by the by, I mentioned Pete Evans, and uh, he's come a cropper in the last week. I could have made a life hack about him, but remind me someone to read out um, the infamous Pete Evans diet. There's a, a section in the Good Weekend magazine called My Week on a Plate. And yep. uh, this is what launched um, the sort of backlash against Pete Evans back in 2012. Because if you read, it's making me laugh even thinking about it. You read yeah. what his day on a plate is like. It is the maddest thing you've ever seen. So I'll make a note <laughs> to read that out next week. Uh, my last life hack for this week, a uh, bit of a media watch one. Very interesting, this. Well, maybe not for people that aren't in the media, but I found it interesting. As you know, uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter, uh, anyone who keeps up with the news, I would know there is a significant public campaign mounting against News Corp and its uh, horrible perversion of the democratic system um, and the concept of even-handed media. Uh, Kevin Rudd, of course, has uh, well started, he um, compiled a petition which got more than half a million signatures calling for a royal commission into this uh, media dictatorship. Um, and there's a lot of pressure on social media, and I've been doing my two bobs worth on that score. But to that end, Finey, it was really interesting. Yesterday, the Herald Sun, yes, I do have to read it, uh, I went online and they had, without any sort of pre-announcement or fanfare or anything, redesigned their entire website. And it is incredibly different looking. But what it smacked of, and they're going to hate me saying this, but it absolutely looks dead like it. It now looks like a carbon copy of the Age website. And uh, the I guess the headline font is a lot more subdued and it, there's a bit more white space around. 
the text looks a bit more, I'm not sure what font it is, but it's a bit more serious looking. And it's absolutely an attempt by them to appear to be more of a serious newspaper. And News Corp, if they're sort of proud of doing something, of course they're going to shout it from the rooftops. There was not a squeak uttered about this, and I looked at it, and to me it smacked of someone there finally going, you know what, we've really crossed a line over the last 12 months in failing to um, support our own state in terms of public safety and health measures when it comes to coronavirus and during the bushfires, um, perpetuating the myth that a lot of the bushfires were caused by arsonists, which was proven to be absolutely untrue. Their continued uh, reticence to acknowledge climate change, despite what Rupert Murdoch himself said at the annual general meeting last week. But I think someone there has finally gone, you know what, we've jumped the shark a bit here, boys. It's time to get a bit of our respectability and credibility back. And yep. they have just emerged from nowhere with this redesigned website. So have a look at it. So you think, um, you know, if you're worried about your traditional Herald Sun content, don't worry, you'll be pleased to know there's still plenty of stuff about WAGs and what Rebecca Judd did yesterday and Nadia Patel being really courageous and all that sort of standard Herald Sun fare. But um, yeah, something's up there. I think they're beginning to feel the heat of public disapproval and not before time. All right, your last life hack. Not my hack, but why is Rebecca and Chris Judd a power couple? Why do they get referred to as a power couple? Because the Herald Sun can't run a day without publishing something about them. And I'll tell you what, uh, speaking of which, traditional Herald Sun content, there was a story yesterday about Mia Favola and uh, Daniel Rioli about how um, even though they're now broken up, their, their uh, special bond will always endure. I think they went out for about six months. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's just this desperation to have wag couples as pseudo-royalty. Anyway. Oh, dear. We're, we're heading into a Kardashian of a car crashian. My last life hack is a bit of an adult one. So if there are underage listeners, that warning probably just makes you want to listen even more carefully. But I went into a, a, an establishment I haven't been into for a few years. Golfing uh, No, no, don't, no, don't. Sexy land? Well, I'd been to Sexy Land. That was the last time I went, about six or seven years ago. No, not to Sexy Land, but I went to another adult bookstore. Well, adult, ad, adult store, not a bookstore, you know. Um, ostensibly to get trains for the meter, not really. Um, just spice up our sex life. And I'll tell you this, Rowan, not having been in there, Technology has got hold of the game. There's a lot of things that go buzz in the night and need to be charged or synced to your computer or your phone or your smart watch. Uh, makes me think that I could have, I could spice up my sex life, but I also need a small generator and a crash course in computer compatibility. And the other thing, Rowan, that I did notice is... Um, Apparently, bigger is better, but given where these things are going to go, I would have thought not. And clearly, there's some people out, some very accommodating Victorians out there, Rowan. <laughs> hey, okay. Can I just ask a, a, a question off the cuff here, which is yeah. if you are talking seriously about spicing your sex life up, do you think that's yeah. something you should have got permission to talk about from a certain other party before you launched forth on a widely listened to podcast? Yeah, probably should have. But maybe that'll spice it up. 
making it public. <laughs> yeah, that would be my tactic. Now that what, I've done it, that's what, what turns me on. What getting chased down the streets of South Yarra by your um, justifiably enraged wife? Oh dear. No, but you know, some people sort of um, spice up their sex life by by public sex. I'm not saying we'll do it in public, but if I talk about it, maybe that's that's my thing. All right, I just feel obliged to say at this point, Natalie. I'm sorry, I knew nothing about this. I was no party to She it. was with me. Um, oh. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Probably not. No, you probably just made it worse. Oh, we were only, I'm telling you, we were quite shocked at how out of date we were, what our expectations were. We, we sort of said, we'll come back and think about it because I really don't want to, I don't know. I, it's obviously safe, but I always thought electricity and water doesn't mix. And then I'm not saying there's much. I just didn't want to get all electric, all, all powered up. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's just too many potential double entendres in that last sentence to even deal with, uh, so we won't. What we will do, though, is go back in time, of course. This is a segment where we pick our favourite music, movies, TV and footy memories from yesteryear. Let's do that now. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, how have we still got years left in this segment? We've been doing it a long time. Well, they're starting to run a bit thin on the ground and there's a big cluster of years we haven't done from this very century, Finey. So we're going to knock a couple of them over over the next few weeks. And I just picked one at random today. Uh, last week we did 1997, so I thought, why not? This week we are doing 2007, revisiting our favourite music, movies, TV and a footy memory from that year. I'm going to kick us off. We're going to start with music. Uh, got to say, this one was reasonably slim pickings for me, probably a sign of my um, taste on contemporary stuff beginning to wane post the uh, turn of the millennium. A uh, couple of albums caught my eye. Foo Fighters brought out uh, Echoes, Silence, Patience and Grace. Don't really think it's one of their better albums, to be honest, but some people might have liked it. Um, and the only other one I actually thought about, and uh, I've mentioned this band a lot on this podcast, it is the Canadian power trio Rush, the veterans of uh, the contemporary music scene who in 2007 brought out their 18th studio album called Snakes and Arrows. Significant for me, finally, because um, they, after recording their 16th album in 1997, had a couple of absolute tragedies uh, befell drummer Neil Peart, who sadly passed away not long ago. But in that year, he lost his um, young daughter in a car crash and about six months later lost his wife uh, to cancer um, and the band pretty much wound it up but came back about five years later with a comeback album um, uh, what was it called uh, Vapors and Trails I think uh, which yeah, wasn't that critically received but this album another five years on Snakes and Arrows is uh, an audio masterpiece it's beautifully mixed and Russia a band that have encapsulated a lot of different sounds, uh, prog rock, bit of early metal, um, straight sort of pop, 
big flirtation with keyboards in the 80s, but this is combining a lot of those elements. And this album really highlights what incredible musicians all three of these guys, Getty Lee, Neil Peart and Alex Lifeson, are or were. Uh, highlights of this album, Snakes and Arrows, for me, Far Cry, which uh, was a single. Um, there's a good film clip of that. They didn't do many film clips, Rush, but that one you might want to have a look at on YouTube. Spin Drift, which is a big production number, and a couple of instrumentals on this album as well, and a particularly beautiful one, actually, is a song um, called The Main Monkey Business. Uh, which features oh, a lot of different instruments and, again, just showcases what incredible musos those guys were. Um, it didn't do huge numbers in, in terms of record sales, even in the Northern Hemisphere, let alone here, where they were very seldom talked about or played on radio or anything, really. But uh, if you haven't heard a lot by Rush, uh, I think this album's a good one to start with because it sort of encapsulates a lot of their strengths in a lot of different um, fashion. So that is my album of 2007, Snakes and Arrows by Rush. What have you got, Finding? Very little. I mean, if you think it was lean for you, I had, for me, it was David Lean, Skinny Titus and Slim Pickens all rolled into one. <laughs> um, and I have a, a, I made a terrible mistake last week because I, I overlooked an album, which I've got to say is my favourite album of all albums of all time, but that's too late. Um, what was it? Oh, it's Sehnsucht by Ramstein. Clearly their their most brilliant and seminal album with Eifersucht, Sehnsucht, Du hast, Buchtisch, which means bend over. God, it's good when they sing bend over. Um, so I am brought into 2007 with very little to choose from, but I end up with um, a person called Tremar Lasselle Dillard. Do you know who he is? No, I don't. Okay, he had his breakout single in 2007, which went to number one all around the world. Now, remember when I told you Nylon was New York and London and I got corrected quite rightly as being somebody who believed in a well-known fallacy on Bigfooty? I do remember that. Okay, well, this time I'm very confident because Terrell or Tremar LaSalle Dillard is better known as Flo Rider and I know how he got his name. Uh, yeah, how was it? Because he comes from Flow Rider. Flow Rider is Florida. Flow Rider. And he's from Florida. Who'd have so, thought? Yeah, there you go. I'm confident on that one. So his song, Low. Do you remember that? Low, no. low, 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 low. Anyhow, not to be confused with Low Rider. Well, it was, another, he... uh, it was a, another song uh, by a band called Cracker called Low from the early 90s. It's not that. No, it isn't. Is Flo um, Rider a rapper? or? Yes, he's a rapper. He, okay. he was accompanied by T-Paint in this particular track. Um, I don't mind hip-hop. I don't mind rap music. I don't mind this song. And it's like, how bad was this year for music for me that I had to bring this shit up? But anyhow, that's life. <laughs> well, and not an album either, just a song. In fact, we're now sort of getting into the age where uh, we may not even have albums to pick because oh, of yeah. course, the kiddies now don't bother listening to albums and it's their loss. Not only is it not an album, bro, but it's a song that I doubt I've ever heard in full. Oh, well, that, that would be pretty typical of kids today. Do they ever listen to I know my son's in the car. He says, oh, Dad, Dad, listen to this. 30 seconds later, it's, oh, no, listen to this. Listen to this. Attention. Have, you ever, have you ever dared 
while whilst your kids are picking songs to have a selection of your own? I insist on it. It's the only way yeah. they get to play theirs. Well, I'm telling you, I try and get a selection of my own. It is like going to the old remember cafes that had those jukeboxes on the table? Yeah. It's like putting your coin in and then coming to the conclusion that you are it's a twenty second a twenty cent choice and you're about thirty dollars away from being played. Yeah, you've got to hang around an extra two hours Correct. to wait for your selection. Oh, no, I absolutely insist on that. In fact, my son David has a very eclectic taste in music because he'll put on a whole lot of rap stuff I've never heard of. He's right into grime, which is English rap, he tells yep. me. But he'll then happily turn around and play some old Led Zeppelin or Sabbath or ACDC. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my kids, my daughters play the piano and love all different types of music. And I've got this wide school of music, I mean, really broad. And they like a lot of the genres I like. But if I like a song, they automatically hate that song. <laughs> like my daughter likes Carly Simon. If I pick a Carly Simon song, no, that's terrible. I'm like, I can only think of one, to be honest. I don't know. You know it was you know your song, Finding. Pardon? I think You're she wrote so it for you. Yeah, she wrote it for you, didn't she? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, she wrote for Matthew Vane. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get on with it. Um, movies. Okay, uh, some of the uh, big movies out of 2007. There was Atonement. Uh, Lars and the Real Girl. I quite liked that. That was a quirky, I think, Swedish film. Knocked Up. Pretty successful comedy. Uh, there Will Be Blood, which was a good film. And... It was a toss-up for me um, because another sort of slice-of-life film about a teenager who gets pregnant uh, called Juno, uh, I thought it was a terrific little film and I could have chosen that. But in the end, um, I was feeling a bit immature and I went with the suitably immature choice of Superbad, which uh, is a lot of fun, uh, directed by Judd Apatow, um, about uh, that uh, tried-and-trusted theme of three geeky but very horny teenagers trying desperately to get to a big party and get pissed and get lucky. And, uh, yes, that is the plot of the entire movie. Uh, it's got a good cask. Uh, cask. It's probably got a few good casks. It's got a good cast, though. Jonah Hill plays Seth. Michael Chera, very good actor out of Arrested Development, playing Evan. And the Prince of Nerds. Now, any of those Revenge of the Nerds films, if this guy had been old enough to be in him, he would have been cast in a flash. I'm speaking of Christopher, I think it's Mince Plass, and he plays Fogel, better known after getting the uh, ill-fated fake ID as the fantastic character McLovin. Um, a great film. It's very funny. Good humour, of course. Uh, Fogel... Uh, a series of um, slip-ups and accidents and uh, coincidences lead uh, Fogel, uh, a.k.a. McLovin, to get driven around with a couple of cops played by Seth Rogen and Bill Hader all night and uh, much mirth will ensue. Uh, the other two get to the party and uh, proceed upon a series of misadventures. Uh, look, it's pretty... Wafer thin in terms of plot, but it's uh, plenty of good laughs. Uh, it's all, uh, there's a niceness about it, you know, so it's sort of, I don't know, it's empathic as well as funny. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I, I still, I would still happily sit down and watch that if it was a sort of feel, you know, lighthearted, not too taxing sort of movie, which seems to be my main occupation in trade these days. I've uh, completely lost my marbles. I can only watch crap now. So that's a good place to start. Super bad, 2007. Your film. Well, if you've gone lighthearted, I've gone the polar opposite. And one of my favourite movies, Coen Brothers. Like, you know I love the Coen Brothers. I do. And this is possibly their most successfully acclaimed movie. Their award, won most awards, best picture at the Academy Awards. The Based on a, a novel, actually, by, I think, only two years previously, No Country for Old Men, same title. Uh, I'm pretty sure written by a guy called kind of Cormac or something like that. Anyhow, I'll get it for you. Uh, based on Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, very close, finally. Cormac McCarthy's novel. And it's set in the 80s. Uh, basically, a decent man comes across some ill-gotten um, gangster money, keeps it, bad decision, and he then becomes the subject of hunt by possibly one of movies, moviedom's most disturbing, um, calculated and successful killers and hitmen. So that role is played by Javier Bardem. The great and the character is Antoine Chigurh. He's a, sort of a, a doppelganger for Fred Cook. Actually, being <laughs> chased down by Fred Cook. Um, Tommy Lee Jones plays the aging police officer or a sheriff in, in this town or, or, or was assigned the case and that's where you get no country for old men because the sort of backstory, not the backstory, but the theme running through it is that he's an aging cop and he uses the term, I'm outmatched here, you know, younger, meaner criminals with bigger weapons and there are times he doesn't follow the case as zealously as he should because he knows sticking his nose in too deep will get his head blown off. Josh Brolin is the hunted. Uh, there's an appearance by Woody Harrelson. It's full of this lush dialogue that makes their movies great. Great scenes that stand alone for um, cinematography, for script, for repeatability. It's just one of those classic Coen Brothers movies where while you're watching it, you're knowing it's a classic and somehow within the depth of violence and cruelty, there's a, a, a sort of a, a level of humour about it. Not that it's absurd, but just that it's, it's, it's unfair and it's cruel, but it's sort of funny. And that's their brilliance. And I, I love this movie, as many do. Yeah, I, I look, I, I remember I really enjoyed it, but I can't remember a lot of it. I, I wonder if there's been sort of a few movies of that sort of ilk. Um, in fact, I, I sort of, I think I was getting that um, mixed up with There Will Be Blood, which came out the same year. Yeah. Um, but I do remember Javier Bardem as the hitman. Uh, also, of course, I presume he's still married to Penelope Cruz or partner of yeah, Penelope. Yeah. Oh, that lucky, lucky bastard is all I can Don't say. call her a bastard. I oh, absolutely oh, love Penelope Cruz. It's funny. I find her look... Slightly, dist I don't find her attractive, not in the slightest. I know that people would find her attractive. She's not my look. Oh, she's mine. She is mine. Uh, all right, uh, let's leave that discussion there as well. 
Um, TV shows. Uh, I've got an interesting one for 2007. I reckon mine's more interesting, but uh, no one will have seen mine, but you go first. Oh, my one. I wasn't hugely popular in Australia, I don't think. I stumbled onto it from memory. Uh, Californication. It is with David Duchovny uh, playing a writer called Hank Moody, who um, has a bad case of writer's block and decides to move from New York to LA to live. And uh, it's just the spot to indulge his uh, creative blockage. Uh, it's fair to say a lot of things are unblocked in his time in LA. They basically every episode is a hour-long binge of drugs and sex and uh, various cavortings. Uh, it's certainly one of the most graphic US um, shows I've ever seen. So that was a bit of a first, even in 2007. Um, but he's he's a good actor. And I think the scripts are great. You know, some very, very funny dialogue. He has this sort of on-again, off-again relationship with his um, partner, Karen, played by Natasha McElhone. Um, she's quite beautiful too. In fact, she reminds me a bit. He's a, this isn't a square off, this is pure coincidence, but she does remind me quite a bit of my own uh, better half. And uh, a big hello to you, Abigail, if you are watching. Um, yeah, I should have mentioned, yeah, um, Penelope Cruz reminds me of Natalie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Does that um, get me out of trouble from no, previous? It's, it's a decent attempt, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> so Hank Moody and Karen have a daughter called Becca, who's the typical sort of young, sassy uh, girl with wry observations on his various predicaments, but she's decent value. And he's got a manager slash uh, troubled friend called um, Charlie Runkle, uh, played by Evan Handler, who, uh, and anyway, the the uh, success of the show is all around the script. Very funny dialogue, um, very uh, ribald and raunchy and deals with a lot of taboo subjects, often in hilarious detail. Uh, one episode in particular, which I'm not even going to hint at, but it's quite, <laughs> quite amazing. Um, anyway, well worth a look if you haven't seen it. Ran for quite a long time. I think there were seven seasons, 2007 to 14. Um, and for any male having a midlife crisis, in fact, I think when I started watching this, I was still on the back end of my midlife crisis. And uh, I did that stupid thing where for about a whole season, I was identifying with Hank Moody's character until I realised I didn't have any of his money, any of his talent, or certainly any of the amount of sex he was getting. Uh, but it's a good to, a good show, well worth a look if you haven't seen it before. Uh, it is available, I think, on Stan. I had a look last night. Uh, Californication, David Duchovny. What's your TV show? Now, my show only ran for two seasons, 26 episodes. I don't think a lot of people have seen it. You'd need to have um, paid TVs. It's on pay TV. Uh, I'll tell you some of the main characters. Tell me if you know what, what, know of them. Certainly the main characters are Donald, Cha-Cha, Daisy. I'm a big fan of Jordan. He's, he's a klutz, but he's a bit of a favourite of mine. Uh, Reno and Yaya. So I guess oh. you know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, I heard Daisy, and for a horrible moment, I thought you were talking about Daisy Cousins of Sky News. No, 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 you've probably never seen it. I'm being facetious. Okay, what is it? It's a program called... Now, you know I love 
primates, monkeys, apes. I love them. I love them. Yes, yes. And yes, I'm a big fan of the gorilla and the chimpanzee, but if I was to come back in this life as anything but a human being, and even probably including human beings, I'd love to be an orangutan. They are just the best. Um, now, most of them live solo lives, but a lot of them are orphaned because of forestry um, accidents or just hunting or just, you know, any person that kills an orangutan should be murdered immediately, by the way. Anyhow, they, so they go to this orphanage in Borneo uh, run by a, a sort of German woman or something, and there's a lot of them. And even though they normally live on their own, they're, they're brought up together in nurseries and kindergartens and then get released onto these small islands where the facility keeps an eye on them, but let, lets them live independently. And this program tracks all their relationships and, you know, some, they're very clever. Some of them are, gee, they're innovative and clever and they do clever things and there's power struggles and boy, oh boy. Boy, to be an orangutan on Orangutan Island. Not a bad life. Not bad. All right. Can you still see it anywhere now? Oh, it comes in replays. It was, I think it's from over 11 or 12 years ago. And I don't like looking up what happened to the orangutans because, you know, eventually they get released back into the wild completely, lose all contact with humans. But they learn to really love their, their, their human carers. I mean, they, they you know that the orangutan mother and child has the longest connected relationship of any animal in the animal kingdom. So oh, most yeah. animals, you know, put their child back into the wild or back into the community, if whatever, after a couple of years, because they have to have other children. But an orangutan baby lives solely with the mother, learning the ways of the forest, just the two of them, for seven or eight years. Only seven or eight years. Oh, yeah. I think some humans ended up doing that for about 60 or 70 years with their mothers, don't they? Yeah, but this is beyond the human experience. But oh, in the yeah. animal kingdom, they need to turn them over to have more kids. But, but it's a very close bond and they learn how to make nests in the tree. So without that connection, because they're all orphans, they become heavily reliant on their human carers and try to learn from them. Well, it's almost like a reality Big Brother type concept, except using primates and the advantage being that you get far more intelligent dialogue than you would with those human-based reality TV shows. So well, let me tell you, you're not a million miles away. There is a, an orangutan who successfully climbs the power hierarchy ladder called Chen Chen. Chen Chen has no eyesight. Part of his mistreatment, he was blinded. Yet his other senses are so acute that he comfortably negotiates life. Wasn't that the master out of Kung Fu? Chen Chen? <laughs> no. <laughs> An old wise. Oh, with no eyesight. Primate looking figure with no eyesight. Yeah, I doubt he could climb the stand to get the daily food supply, nor would he be able to have such a successful one-on-one -on -one relationship with Ya Yen, a very attractive orangutan, if I say so myself. Mm, yes, grasshopper. All right, let's get on with it. Um, my footy memory, 2007. Well, all right, this one's pretty obvious. You think 2007, you think of one thing. You think of a resurgent Geelong on not only, well, no, not a role, this was a tidal wave. What an incredible 
turnaround for the Geelong Footy Club. Of course, famously, after five games that season, they lost to North Melbourne down at the Cattery. They were 2-3, all sorts of self-examination going on. It was sort of like the line in the sand moment. And boy, did they turn things around starting the very next week against Richmond when they came out and uh, racked up an absolute cricket score against the Tigers, kicking 10 goals in the first quarter, 10 goals in the second quarter, nine goals in the third quarter. They beat the Tigers by 157 points. And from there, it just snowballed. They ended up winning 24 of their last 25 games. The only loss literally in the last few seconds of play against Port Adelaide, which uh, they of course would famously uh, seek and obtain vengeance for on grand final day with a record grand final winning margin of 119 points. In fact, two of Geelong's three finals wins in 2007 were by 100 or more points. They won the qualifying final against North Melbourne by 105 points. They were on fire, absolutely untouchable, an intoxicating brand of footy uh, based on a strong defence, but um, frenetic ball movement. Beautifully skilled side. Nine All-Australians in that year's side came from Geelong. They were Scarlett, Milburn, Egan, Bartell, Johnson, Mooney, Ablett, Corey and Wing. It was some emergence and, of course, some would say an era that has continued ever since, really. In fact, they've all never been Western competitive since then, only missed the finals once in all that time since that 2007 resurgence. And I would say easily, finally, of all the great eras we've had in the modern game, and I'm talking about Brisbane, the early 2000s, Hawthorne, um, Essendon, the turn of the century, by far the most attractive side of those to watch, in my view, was the Cats of that 2007 to 11 era. Fantastic time for them. They played a great brand of footy and absolutely the highlight of 2007 in football sense. What was yours? Just quickly, you forget how unlucky Matthew Egan oh, was. Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't play, didn't play again. Uh, he was seemingly starting a, a magnificent football journey. It would have garnered him premierships, constant All-Australian. Ah, oh, what a pity. Yeah, very unlucky. Senior coach at Essendon for a short period, wasn't he? He was. Uh, last, what, two games, I think, of 2015. All right, your footy memory. Well, in a stellar career that did include playing in three premierships and propelled him into the world of all-time greats, 2007 really was the year for Jonathan Brown, wasn't it? He won the Coleman medal. You know, you think... He didn't play full forward, kicked 77 goals. Pretty good effort. All-Australian. He was one of the co-captains at Brisbane. I think vice-captain of the All-Australian team, I think. But became the first ever Brisbane, Brisbane line to kick 10 goals in a game when he did so against Carlton. And certainly, I think post-2007, it's, it's amazing to think this. But even though he played in three premierships early in his career, that was not the best part of his career. Mm. It it ignited post-2007 and he became famous for his feats of great courage, selfless acts, running with the flight of the ball. And 2007 was pretty much the best of it, I would have thought. Yes, and that... Uh, the that best game... and fairest as well, I think, at, at Brisbane. 
Well, that game against Carlton, of course, uh, was the game which preceded uh, Dennis Pagan's sacking as Carlton coach. Or as now is known, preceded the process that landed Dennis Pagan the winner in the Victorian Derby some <laughs> many years later. Or the beginning of the process which would see Brett Ratton become St Kilda coach. Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, yes, Carlton yes. coach and then getting sacked. Uh, this could go on forever. This is 28 degrees of separation. Uh, <laughs> it was a He was a man at the peak of his powers, Jonathan Brown. No question about that. One of the great key forwards of the modern era. All right. That is our look back at 2007. A big year in music, movies, TV and football. Uh, almost at the end of this, finally. But uh, there's only one thing that will finish it off. That's a good old-fashioned rant. And we're going to have one of those right now. On Footyology, the rant off. Okay, no idea what you're ranting about this week, Finey. Uh, I had no idea what I was ranting about till shortly before this show. But I got on a roll. I got suitably enraged. And uh, I delivered a blistering rant. Uh, could be slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I'll make it sound angry anyway. Can you please count me in? Well, for those who don't know, Rowan is a giant in the ranting industry. So he comes in with one, two, three. I'm pissed off with AFL clubs and their devotion to following football fashion, Finey. They're not bad, are they? One club goes a particular road, has a bit of success with it, and then every man and his dog wants to jump on the bandwagon. Look at Richmond. They've now won three flags in four years, and so everyone's trying to play the pressure game. Essendon's even pinched half the Tigers' administration and coaching staff and already flicked the administration bit. Unfortunately, someone at the hangar didn't get the memo about which version of Richmond they were trying to replicate. And the consistent mediocrity and infighting suggests the Bombers have been studying in great detail the Danny Frawley, Terry Wallace years instead. Speaking of coaches, that's the funniest aspect of AFL football's need for slavish imitation. Clubs have discovered that coaches who have been sacked years ago are actually capable of improving themselves and still doing the gig. Look at Brett Radden. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more examples like that to follow. What's Bernie Quinlan up to these days? Maybe Dennis Jones, who took Melbourne to a wooden spoon in his one and only season in charge of the Demons in 1978. And then there's the latest football fashion, the all-encompassing football experience trend. I mean, look at David Noble's appointment at North Melbourne. By my count, that's four in the last seven or eight years who have been appointed after fulfilling administrative roles before they got the gig. We had Luke Beveridge, Phil Walsh, Chris Fagan, all doing management roles. Who's going to be next cab off the rank? The head of Australia Post? Uh, maybe not, unless you want a nice watch. Fagan never played a game of AFL football, and he's been a revelation. And Noble only played two games for Fitzroy. By those measures, Finey, I reckon my 30-odd games in the goal square for John Gardner High would have held me in perfect stead for an AFL coaching gig. Some of us have said for decades that this stuff was possible, but clubs insisted on having formerly great players as coaches, immediately disenfranchising about 99% of the population. As you know, Finey, I've always thought you and I were two of football's potentially greatest coaches, cruelly denied what could have been our destiny only by our chronic lack of football ability. We could have been contenders, Finey. We had razor-sharp tactical smarts, the power of our inspiring oratory, and our man management skills were legendary. 
There's no player I coached over the journey who wasn't able to lift to unprecedented heights after being stirred by the power of a Connolly FRO or the inspiring story of a little kid who had to choose between the cheaper shoes and the pair for which he'd have to pay the price and got told by me to hurry the F up, you little prick. We've still got to get to the bank and the chemist. As for tactics, they still talk about my wiliness in the heat of battle during those street games we played after school back in the 1970s, long before Kevin Sheedy moved Western Duckworth and Bradbury to the forward line in the 84 grand final, I'd rearranged the whole setup of the Avenue's midfield to win the famous battle against arch-rival Oak Grove. We had Macca's little brother charging in from the gutter and the new kid's famous Ted Hopkins-like cameo when he snuck on from behind Mrs Cameron's front fence to kick the winning goal with the siren or Smithy's mum yelling out, dinner! Whichever came first, only seconds away. If only AFL clubs had discovered these latest trends in coaching appointments 30-odd years ago, Fonny, I'm convinced it would be you and me now reeling in the big bucks and delivering AFL premierships while the likes of Damien Hardwick and Alistair Clarkson fronted some pissant podcast where they talk crap for a couple of hours about what shitty music and movies they were listening to and watching in the mid-1980s. Hang on, actually, now I think about it, that doesn't sound like a bad idea for a show. Perhaps we should try it sometime. <laughs> Very good. Sliding doors, you say? Ah, <laughs> yes. Well, you know what? I would have loved to have taken Essendon to some wooden spoons. <laughs> Very good. Well, I didn't need to bother about that with St Kilda. They did the job for <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah, there you go. All right. I'm going to count you in. Three, two, one, rant. Let me be up front. Ever since the debacle that was 2020's holding the ball rule that saw a 180, 360, 720, backflip, forward flip, reversal of decision that had nothing to do with Alistair Clarkson's words or a savage media, or a public baying for change, I have not been a fan of Steve Hocking. I've gone all Shania Twain on him, actually. He don't impress me much. You see, this man, I don't believe, understands what football fans expect to see or hear. And when he released the changes for 2021, he went from Shania Twain to Zachary Smith, a bubble-headed booby, a nickel-plated nincompoop, an absolute dunce. And you didn't have to wait long for what was the most stupid element of his statement to the media and to the football world. He announced that we are going to have, through rule changes and tweaks, more Dustin Martin moments. Is that right, mate? More Dustin Martin moments. And how are we going to get these Dustin Martin moments? by changing the latitude given to players standing on the mark. Not more Dustin Martin moments, Steve. More moments of being on hold to Foxtel waiting for a new remote control after frustrated supporters break their existing one as you make a rule that is already unpredictable and unevenly administered even more so. Oh, you're reducing interchanges. More Dustin Martin moments? I don't think so more opportunities for both sides of the argument to get statistical evidence to back up their claims, but not more Dustin Martin moments. I'm not going to let go of this one. I know it was a throwaway line, sort of that modern vapid statement meant to gain attention, but 
be taken nowhere into the future, no accountability. Well, you're not going to get away with your current affair headline, mate. I'm going to analyse it. More Dustin Martin moments. Who are you appealing to? The sort of football fan that has to combine their supporting football with an afternoon nap and passing kindergarten. Or maybe those football fans that aren't really invested in the game. You know, the ones that don't know that their team was playing because they were on a bric-a-brac trail in the Dandenongs on Saturday afternoon. The sort of fans that can only name three players. Dustin Martin, Gary Ablett. Well, he doesn't count. He's not playing. And, and who's the other one? Nat Nick of Norway, I think. Because you are appealing to the lowest common denominator football fan by promising more Dustin Martin moments. As though those little snippets are all people are interested in. You're changing the rules of the game. You're not selling AFL on Xbox. More Dustin Martin moments. How about going with out now for this, out now for Christmas, or maybe new and improved or fun for all the family? Look, you're not getting away with that line, but I'm willing to save you because your rules will not give us more Dustin Martin moments. Create a department that Dustin Martinization of football, make me its head, and I'll save your blushes, Steve, because this is what I'll do. I'll get in contact with the Department of Foreign Affairs, tighten up citizenship rules, get more New Zealand-born Australians deported back to their country of birth. That's a Dustin Martin moment. I'll give footballers chopsticks to carry on the field with them so they can harass, allegedly harass, their opponents. That's Dustin Martin. You know what I might even do? I might make neck tats, semi-compulsory. So after the Mexican street gangs in LA, footballers playing the AFL have a higher propensity towards them. Now that's Dustin Martin. On field, I'll legalise the old don't argue to the head. Forget sacrosanct, you'll be allowed to knock it off with a straight arm. That's Dustin Martin. And I'll even get judges to assess every goal. Because after this year's grand final, we need degrees of difficulties like Dustin Martin. So everybody tries to kick a goal that does a leg break, straight break, two bounces, and goes under an opponent's legs. I will have the game Dustin Martin and your embarrassment saved. Because if I don't Dustin Martin the game, then your words are nothing more than meaningless rubbish. Ah, very good. Very, very good. Very long for you. Um, but uh, no, no, I know where you're coming from. It did have that feel about it, didn't it? That he uh, had his spiel ready to go and some marketing genius ran down and went, Steve, Steve, use this line, use this line. That's what everyone will talk about. And uh, yeah, it made him look pretty silly, I thought. So absolutely with you on that one. Um all right, we're going to wrap it up there. That's it for this week. A quick plug for our sponsors, Finey, if you will. The best burger in town. Now, I always say the best burger in town. Everybody knows that. The burger you want now. The burger you want when you're hungry. The burger I want right bloody now. I haven't had lunch. Is an Andrews Hamburgers, 144, Bridport Street, Albert Park. Not everybody's ever going to be in the position to renovate their home. But you'd be surprised the affordability that means that you are in that position. Yes, I'm talking to you, sir, madam. Get onto it with West Point Properties and Nick Bartels. He does the sort of job that makes, turns a home 
into a castle. Uh, thank you, Rowan. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors. And thank you very much, our audience. You can help support Footyology by going to the supporter page on this very podcast platform you're listening to us on or visit the homepage of footyology.com.au. Still plenty of great off-season content. Really good column by Michelangelo Rucci today about the draftees who didn't make it over the years. Some interesting numbers there. I've uh, got some interesting social commentary in the last few days from Angela Pippos as well. You can catch up with that rules column of mine from last week that Finey still hasn't read. And uh, plenty of other wonderful stuff as well, including this podcast. And uh, you can become an official Footyology patron by visiting Patreon and pledge your support for $5 US per month, helping us sustain our operation. Uh, final words from you, Finey. Well, I've just been had pointed out to me that some people do take advertisements a little literally, and I was using some literally literary license when I said he'll turn your home into the, into a castle. He does not build turrets, draw bridges, moats, or have a facility for you to pour boiling oil over unwelcome visitors. Oh. God, who doesn't want a moat around their property? That would be fantastic. Well, he does, but the permits are hard to get, expensive. And if you do live in oh, – there's a list of suburbs, but certainly the two Waverleys, Glen Waverley and Mount Waverley, you are not allowed to have a moat. Um, what about crocodiles? Do they come included or do you have to purchase separately? Well, mate, if somebody builds you a swimming pool, they don't put the swimmers in there. If they get your pond, no goldfish. Get your own friggin' crocodiles. I know one suburb you'd be allowed to build. Where was uh, what suburb was Cryo Castle in? Remember Cryo Castle? Oh, that was great. That was on the way to Bed, <laughs> Bed Ballarat. It became yeah. it became a, like a rave venue for a short period of time. But do you know between being Cryo Castle and rave venue, there was a word out that it hosted swinger parties. I was waiting for something like this. It did. No, that's true. Yeah, well, I did last time I was at your place. I did see a hint of a court jester outfit hanging in the wardrobe. Yeah, it, I remember some article. It was like a castle's bawdy past, or and, and you know, um, local residences. Local residents have signed a petition to immediately stop the hosting of. Now they were called sort of um, illicit sex parties. And all that made me want to do was get older quicker so I could go to one of them. Yeah, my uh, mum and dad went to the launch. My dad was features editor at one stage. This is in the early 70s. They went to the actual opening night of the Dirty Dicks themed oh, yeah. restaurant. And yeah. <laughs> I can remember even as a young kid being very intrigued about what they were going to encounter. And they came home and apparently yeah, you all used to eat like Henry VIII, you know, pick up great big full pig on a spit and, you know, take huge chunks out of it. And then yeah, some yeah. busty wench had come and replenish your your yeah, mug yeah. with the finest ales. And where the hell is this going? I know, just, but just very quickly, when I was young, oh, of course, I was naive. Yeah. And I thought, swing, I thought a swinger party was somewhere where you'd run into like Chris Old or Jeff Arnold or Mike Hendricks. But nary a new ball seam-up bowler to be found, apparently. Uh, could be called the double entendre show. All right, but uh, we've heard enough of it. And for those who think that uh, we don't ramble on enough, 
I think today has proved you wrong. We can ramble with the best of them. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, we'll speak to you again next week.